good to be with you all again. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn them to the Old Testament uh, book of Amos. Our text this morning will be Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then skipping over to chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. The book of Amos, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is God's Word, so let's, uh, let's pay, pay heed to it. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters, actually the word is thunders, utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Now if you turn over to chapter 7, beginning with verse 10. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile, away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom." Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees, sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word this morning. Blessed God, you are eternal goodness, eternal righteousness, eternal truth forever. You're the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask that you would grant to us now that pure and holy spirit, that our hearts may be right, that the inspiration of our thoughts may be true, and all our ways truly righteous. Pour down your spirit on us now. Give us ears to hear and strength to apply what you would teach us today from this book of Amos. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now as we, as we begin this morning, uh, let, me just, let me give you just a little bit of background, sort of a, a brief summary, if you will, of the, of the book of Amos. You know, first of all, like the other 11 minor prophets, uh, the be- or a better name, as I mentioned last week, should be the Shorter Prophets. Amos is a very practical book, but it's, 
it's been largely ignored by the church. You know, some of you have probably never heard a sermon on the book of Amos. Yet I think it's one of the most readable, one of the most relevant and moving portions of God's Word. It's a book which speaks to many of our present sins, and it calls us for for action to deal with those sins. Affluence, exploitation, and the profit motive were the most notable features of the society which Amos observed and in which he worked. You know, the rich people were, were rich enough to have summer homes and winter homes. They elaborately furnished those homes, and they seldom denied themselves any bodily pleasure. On the other hand, the poor were really poor, and they were shamelessly exploited by the rich. Many of the courts were crooked, and when the poor couldn't contribute to the rich in some way, they were simply ignored. They were left to their own devices. Making money and coveting ruled everything. Men lived to advance their careers. Women lived for excitement. Rulers lived just to have a good time. Public standards of morality were at a low ebb. There was a lot of sexual indulgence, a lot of unethical commercial practices. That was the culture in which Amos moved. And when he turned his gaze uh, gaze from the culture upon the church, he found a religion which loved what was traditional, but which had shaken completely free from divine revelation. Now, the churches were full. Sacrifices were being offered. The musical side of worship was keenly studied, but it had absolutely no basis outside the mind of man. So as Amos looked around, what he saw wasn't a very pretty picture. These were the sorts of things that provoked him to speak and then to write. And they also, I believe, provide us with solid grounds for considering that he has something important and relevant to say to us today. You know, aren't these the things which mark our society and the church today? You know, some more, some less. None of them is true about everybody. Each of them is true about somebody. No, Amos might very well have been walking through the streets of Tucson or the streets of Phoenix or Flagstaff or any other city in America as he spoke out and as he penned these words. Now, Amos says in verse 1 that he wrote during the reigns of Uzziah, of Judah, and Jeroboam of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Unfortunately, we don't know the date of this earthquake. But the Jeroboam who reigned in Israel at the time Uzziah reigned in Judah was Jeroboam II. And he reigned from about 786 B.C. to 746 B.C., about 40 years. And since the conditions Amos described 
during his reign, it's likely that Amos appeared in Israel toward the end of that period, sometime around 750 B.C. Now, this was a, this was a good time for, in Israel. In fact, it was the best of times. It wasn't just a time of great affluence, but also of political strength, a time of national stability, a time Israel was expanding. Let me just review a little history here. You know, uh, recall that Israel had come into existence after the death of Solomon. And when he died, you remember that the kingdom split into two parts. Judah continued to exist in the south, ruled by the heirs of Solomon. And the northern kingdom of Israel went its own way. It was ruled by various kings. Now, in the beginning, Israel was sort of, it was hemmed in by the neighboring kingdom of Syria. There were frequent border skirmishes, lots of fighting. Times were not good. Times were hard. But about 10 years before Jeroboam came to power in Israel, the Assyrians defeated Syria, thus getting rid of the one nation that more than any other had hindered Israel's expansion. And then Assyria entered a decline in her influence from which uh, it didn't really recover until about 745 B.C. Now Jeroboam, he was a vigorous man. He was a very able magistrate. He had lots of good ideas. And with no real enemy on the scene, he was given a pretty free hand to expand. And that's what he did. He expanded Israel's borders. And with the control this afforded him over trade routes, a period of great stability and prosperity came to Israel. Wealth accumulated. And that wealth uh, allowed leisure to become possible. And most people said that God was evidently blessing the nation. In fact, they had a state religion to say that. And this state religion was very popular. At least it was popular with the wealthy classes. The only problem was that the blessings for which the rich were thanking God had come at the expense of the poor. And as a consequence, the religion, it wasn't true religion at all. It was a sham. It looked good on the surface, but it was corrupt beneath. And you see, it was, in, it was into this kind of climate, this kind of culture, that God sent Amos with his prediction of judgment and coming doom on the church and on the nation. You know, we've all heard a lion roar, and it can be pretty frightening. Even when we know the lion is behind strong bars at a zoo. That's what Amos says in verse 2, that God was now doing. The Lord was roaring, thundering from Zion, thundering from Jerusalem. He was about to judge Israel. And I want you to notice that the scope of this judgment would be total. It was to extend from Zion to the pastures of the shepherds, that is, from the best to the poorest and most remote areas of that land. And it would include Mount Carmel, which contained the best farm and grazing land. It was to wither away 
in the days to come. And as we're going to see, all that did, in fact, come to pass. Who was this man, Amos? What do we know about him? Well, now strictly from a human perspective, I think he was an extraordinary man. He had a great moral compass. He was perceptive. He was brave. He could take criticism. You know, yet so far as we can tell, he didn't have any formal religious training. He wasn't a seminary graduate. He didn't have an MDiv degree. You know, in, in the first sentence of the book, and in chapter 2, or I'm sorry, chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, Amos uses three words to describe himself. He says, first of all, that he was a shepherd, that he was a herdsman. He was one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, I've heard some people say that this word refers to an owner of great flocks who would have many shepherds underneath him. But that's not likely. It's it's not the normal use of the word. The second word in chapter 7, verse 14, is caretaker. A caretaker or dresser of sycamore figs. Now, again, it's possible, I suppose, that Amos owned the fig trees. He was therefore a rich farmer. But it doesn't say that. He says simply he's a caretaker or a dresser. Besides, the the sycamore fig tree produced a very poor kind of fruit, which only the poor people ate. So that doesn't suggest prosperity to me. And the third word is in chapter 7, verse 15. says that he's a follower or tender of sheep. In other words, again, he's a shepherd. Now, all of these words suggest a poor man, a man who, who worked hard for his living. And as we consider this, I think it gives us the first insight, the first glimpse, and maybe one of the greatest lessons in this wonderful little book, God's use of the insignificant. You know, it's certainly true that God sometimes uses the rich and famous of this world. And we should be pleased when he does do that. But it's more often the case, isn't it? Almost the rule that he uses the insignificant so that the glory might go to himself and not to mere men or women. You know, now that I've, I've said that, I don't completely like this word insignificant, but I can't at the moment think of a better one. So maybe later on you can think of one. But the principle that I'm getting at, I think is stated very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 29. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. I think that's the principle. And I think we can think of of many scriptures, many examples in scripture. Abraham, 
the pagan, who became the greatest of the Hebrew patriarchs. Moses, the slave, who became the great lawgiver. David, he was the eighth and youngest son of Jesse, who became the greatest king. You know, all those men were pretty insignificant in the beginning. But all were totally given over to God, as Amos was. And God accomplished great things through them. Now, I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. You know, if we're looking for those who have great stature in this world's eyes, and we're looking to them for what needs to be done, then we are in big trouble. There are not many wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. But if, on the other hand, God is able and actually does use the humble and the lowly of this world, this means that he's able to use us, and he will, if we're willing to give him the credit and the glory for what we do. You know, the fact that uh, God used Amos it certainly doesn't mean that his message was well-received, however. In fact, we saw here in the text that the opposite was the case. You know, God called Amos when he was a shepherd and a caretaker of sycamore trees in Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is a small town in Judah. It's about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And he says to him in chapter 7, verse 15, Go! Prophesy to my people Israel. That's north. And Amos obeyed. He left his flocks and trees. He started walking north from Judah into Israel. And apparently, he began to preach as soon as he crossed the border at Bethel. This is the first Israelite city of any size. Now, it's significant that Amos began began to preach at Bethel. And to understand why, I think we have to review just a little bit more history of Israel. After the death of Solomon and the division of the nation into two parts, Solomon's son Rehoboam continued to rule in the south, in Judah. But in the north, in Israel, Jeroboam I became the new king. And Jeroboam had the task of consolidating the kingdom under his rule. But that was difficult due to the previous focus of Israel's political life and spiritual life in Jerusalem, which was in Judah, in the south. Jerusalem was the center of all activity. People went there annually to offer their sacrifices. They went there to attend the various uh, mandatory feasts. And and Jeroboam recognized that. He recognized that if these pilgrimages continued, he was going to eventually lose the people. And that's how he and this is how he, he put it in that passage that Dick read earlier from First Kings chapter twelve, verses twenty six and twenty seven. Jeroboam's talking, he says, The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So what did he do? 
And while he established several religious sites for his kingdom within the boundaries of Israel. Now, one of those centers was on the southern border at Bethel. There was another on the northern border at Dan. And as Dick read, he put a golden calf in each one. And he instructed the people to to worship there. And he also instituted feasts to match those of the southern kingdom. Now, each one of those sites became a focus for the official state religion and became a home for the official feast uh, uh, priests of Israel. It's interesting, it says in that text that Dick read that uh, these, these priests in Israel were not Levites. That's where the priests were supposed to come from. Now, all of this was a no-no. <laughs> you couldn't do this. No, this was exactly what God had said not to do. Sacrifices were to be made only at the temple in Jerusalem. And there were most certainly not to be any shrines or, or golden calves. Now, this may have been a shrewd political move by Jeroboam, but it was downright disobedience to God's laws. And as you might expect, it had disastrous results. You know, the state and its official religion were in cahoots, and the religion became a tool of repression rather than a voice for righteousness in the land of Israel. And so it was to this religious center in Bethel that Amos first went to prophesy and to preach. And we read very clearly in the text that he didn't pull any punches. He spoke forthrightly about immorality and social injustice. He spoke of false religion and the oppressive use of wealth. He said that judgment was coming. Now, as you might expect, the people didn't take too kindly <laughs> to this kind of talk. You know, these people thought of themselves as the people of God. These people had ancestral dealings with God. God had, had brought them out of Egypt. He had constituted them as his people and given them their religion. They thought they were walking with God. They thought they were tight with God. So none of what Amos says here in chapter 7 went down very well with these people. And it was particularly offensive at Bethel, this state shrine, if you will. And it was offensive to this guy called Amaziah. This priest who was entrusted with the smooth and efficient running of this religious center. And it's so like a true bureaucrat, Amaziah sent a report to his boss, King Jeroboam. And I, knowing him, he probably sent it in three copies. In verses 10 and 11, he says... Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. You know, in J.A. Motyer's excellent commentary on Amos, he says that this response by Amaziah, by this state bureaucrat, 
is the first of three temptations or three tests pressed upon Amos. Matthew says the first test is the test of misrepresentation. Now, Amos did say that Israel would be carried into exile, and that did happen. But he never said that Jeroboam would be killed. Amaziah just made that up. Jeroboam was not killed in battle. He actually died a natural death at home. But that doesn't this often happen, you know, when the word of God is spoken? So interesting to me. People will allow us to speak the truth of God so long as we speak it to each other in church, in our little spiritual huddles. But let it be spoken in the public square, and let it be understood there. And misrepresentation and opposition began immediately. I think you found that to be true. Speak openly of sin. People start to get a little uptight and edgy. And they say things like, you know, who are you to judge me? That's just your opinion. Do you think you're better than everybody else? You know, you you speak of Jesus as the only way of salvation, and you're immediately branded as narrow-minded or bigoted or as offending the Muslims. It's misrepresentation all the way, and it happens every day. You know, let me just say, I'll probably get in trouble here, Let me just say parenthetically that this recent Supreme Court ruling that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional, as well as, if you recall, a couple of years ago, the uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, places increasing burdens on our military chaplains to be faithful to the ordination vows. You know, I was talking to Chaplain Doug Hess uh, this week. Most of you know him. He's, uh, he's preached here many times. He's an Air Force chaplain. And he tells me that each day, every day, brings increased pressures and challenges to water down the gospel, to be politically correct. And I think we need to be clear here. Don't think that the church will escape this same sort of scrutiny and pressure. We should be ready for it. It's coming. And soon. The second temptation Amos faced, I think, was self-interest. It's related to the first one. You know, Amaziah says to Amos in verse 12 of chapter 7, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. You know, it's significant that the Hebrew verbs translated here as go and flee, some of your translations say get out or go back, they contain this added emphasis for your own sake. In other words, Amaziah is saying, Amos, I can't protect you here. For your own good, for your own security and safety, I strongly recommend that you go back to where you came from. Go back to Judah. Preach there. Let them feed you. Let them pay your salary. And since Amaziah was in the religious business for money, he assumes that Amos is in the business for money too. And he tells him here that he'll have far greater success in his own land if he wants to to preach against the northern kingdom of Israel. We have the same temptation today. comes in many different forms. 
We're constantly being told to water down the gospel for the sake of peace, for the sake of prosperity. You know, if you want to get ahead in life, you want to get ahead in the church, well, don't make too many waves. Don't speak too strongly against sin. You don't want to make people uncomfortable. They might leave the church. You might not get that promotion. You know, I've mentioned this to some of you, but some time ago I was asked to give the opening prayer at a, me- uh, opening prayer at a meeting of the Pima County Board of Supervisors. And so I went down there and some lady, I don't know who she was, I think she may have been the clerk or the secretary. She called me aside and very discreetly gave me clear instructions that my prayer was to be inclusive of everybody and everything. And not to mention the name of Jesus because, well, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. Well, I'm 73 years old. <laughs> Nobody. I politely told her I was a Christian minister. I simply couldn't do that. So I prayed as I normally do. It, it didn't seem to spark any particular outrage. They didn't throw things at me. <laughs> but it's interesting. I've never been invited back. So this temptation for self-interest is real, I think. The third test for Amos was a confrontation with authority. Verse 13, Amaziah warns Amos, Never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary. It's the temple of the kingdom. You know, can't you just see Amaziah, this bureaucrat in his fancy, poofy, ecclesiastical garb, rising up with his pride of position, declaring that since Bethel is a royal chapel, it's a national cathedral, that people like Amos are decidedly out of place there. Well, maybe in man's sight, but not in God's. In God's sight, Amos was precisely where God had placed him. And Amos knew this. And he didn't shrink from these tests. In fact, he passed them all. He stood firm. Actually, he did more than just stand firm. You read the text here, you see that he talked back. And his words in verses 16 and 17 were a judgment on this priest, on this bureaucrat. He said, now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. You see, Amaziah's rejection of Amos' message didn't affect the message or its outcome in the slightest. What Amos said would happen did happen. And as we see here, the results were disastrous for Amaziah. Without going into the details, in 721 B.C., Israel's capital, capital city of Samaria fell to the Assyrians. And we know that 27,000 of its inhabitants went into exile. They were deported. The king and his nobles were taken away. And although we have no independent record of what happened to Amaziah, 
Presumably, he was also taken into exile, and he died in Assyria, just as Amos said. Now, isn't all this relevant to us as we live out our days? Aren't there important lessons that that we can learn from this little book tucked away in the backwaters of the Old Testament? You know, I think there are. We've already mentioned one. God can and does use the insignificant, the humble, and the lowly to accomplish his purposes. I think another lesson, in some kinds it's painful, is that if, if spiritual privileges are not exercised properly, I think they can be very dangerous to us. You see, the claim in Amos' day was that privilege brings security. You know, these people had been privileged in the past to have direct dealings with God. At certain times in the past, God had shown that he was on their side. But Amos says to them, and I think he says to us today, that the nearer to God, the closer the scrutiny, and the more certain the judgment if spiritual privileges are abused. Far from their privileges saving them, more will be required from those to whom more has been given. The greater the light, the greater the responsibility to live holy and righteous lives in the presence of this light. No, I think the warning is that the church is not exempt from God's judgment. Far from it. The judgment begins most severely there if spiritual privileges are not exercised to the glory of God. I think a third lesson is that religious profession is invalid. And I think it's even repulsive to God unless verified by faithful religious practice. You know, if you read further in this little book, Amos makes clear what the evidences of true religion are. I think in personal terms, true religion is to respond fully to the grace of God, living a life of obedience, resting on the grace of God in Christ, both for ability and for forgiveness. Towards God, true religion is a reverent hearing and receiving of His Word. And towards other people, I think it appears as things like honesty, considerateness, concern for all people, particularly the poor. You know, you take those things away, and what remains is not true religion. It's the religion of Amos' day. It does nothing more than invite God's wrath and judgment. Dear ones, it's simply not enough just to talk the talk. We have to act on our religion, act on our faith, and do good. I think that's the sure proof that our faith is real. You know, Christ tells us, I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. You know, we should never be content with simply maintaining correct theological views, as important as those are. We must not be satisfied with clear knowledge, with just warm fuzzies, saying all the right things. To only do so is to make our faith simply a noisy gong. 
the clanging cymbal. You know, the words of James, our Lord's brother, should ring in our ears. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. May God give each of us grace to talk the talk and to walk the walk. And may he have mercy on us for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Our Father, bless these words. We ask that you would bless these words to our hearts this morning. The, you know, your Apostle Paul calls the church today the Israel of God. He speaks of us as the children of Abraham. He says that we are the circumcision. We're the inheritors of the new covenant predicted by Jeremiah. And Father, we pray that you would give us the grace never to fall into the traps Israel fell into, which are vividly described here by your prophet for our instruction. God, give us the grace to be a righteous, holy people, living as you would have us live, and never tiring of doing good. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.